pray. Amen. Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Psalms? Today, I'm going to take you to perhaps the most, the most known chapter in the book of Psalms, Psalm 23. Uh, perhaps even the most known chapter in all of the Bible, up there with, uh, you know, the great uh, John chapter 3, John 3, 16 in particular. Uh, th this is a very, very familiar text, Psalms chapter 23. Um, this highly familiar chapter of the Bible to believers and even to non-believers, to the churched, the unchurched, the de-churched, the no-churched, uh, and, uh, and so on. Er er everyone seems to know this passage. This past Friday, we, we, we had a funeral here, and so during the week, as I was thinking about the family and thinking about how to minister the Word in that funeral, I was drawn to Psalm 23. It's a great passage for funerals. It's a passage that offers a, a, a great deal of comfort. And so as I was uh, studying it, I was just reminded, you know, it, it's, it's been a handful of years since we've, on a Sunday morning, studied Psalm 23. So uh, why, don't, why don't we study Psalm 23 this Sunday? It's a wonderful passage. And uh, some of you who've uh, began attending this church in the last, say, four years have, ha haven't heard me teach the text. And I think this is one that ought to be re revisited every few years for God's people to feast upon it. This psalm, Psalm 23, has inspired all sor sorts of things in our culture, from idioms to artwork to music, especially music. Everyone from Bach to Tupac from Keith Green to Kanye, has made a song about this chapter. Suffice it to say, it's a very familiar chapter, and with that, we have the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And while I don't think that that is always the case, or that it should be the case, as a teacher of the Bible, I have found it, it difficult to teach texts that people are familiar to. It's not due to contempt, it's due to clean up. It seems that these familiar texts are most often the most abused ones by, by preachers who haven't rightly handled the text, and that gets passed on to people through trickle-down. And so a lot of people know Psalm 23, but they don't really know what Psalm 23 is about. And so uh, the title of my message this morning is Appreciating Psalm 23. I would like for us to appreciate the text, to understand the text, to see the text in its context. Uh, by context, I mean the historical, sociological, cultural, uh, literary context of where, where, where this emerges so that we understand it as it was intended by the author and as it was read by the original audience. You know, when you read things, you intuitively read it taking into account, or you ought to intuitively read it taking into account the author, when it was written, to whom it was written, what was going on around the readers at the time when they received the text. You should think about the words and the grammar and the genre. You know, who, what, when, where, why, how you're taught in school in terms of understanding things that you read. When those things are ignored, any text can be missed or misunderstood. Uh, whether it's an email or a Facebook post, those get misunderstood a lot, especially in the last few years, uh, a text between people, or an actual book, or the book, or the book, uh, which gives Facebook a run for its money in terms of being misread and uh, having irrational uh, and illogical responses to it. So here we are with Psalm 23, and uh, the burden before me in teaching it is to do some, some cleanup as I'm also giving the context and explaining it. So by way of context, you'll see on your outline, the first point is the opening, the opening, the book of Psalms. So by way of introduction, what is a psalm? Uh, our word psalm comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means a song or a hymn. This Greek word is a translation, psalmos, of the Hebrew word for the book, which is tehillim. Tehillim literally just means praise. This is a, a praise book. This is written to be a praise book for God's people Israel, the book of Psalms. And it, it offers a rich well of praise as well theology for uh, God's people Israel and in this age for the church. And so we, the Church of Christ, we want to we open this book and we see in this book this ancient uh, source of, of praise that's filled with songs that are rich in theology. The book of Psalms has 150 chapters, which are basically songs for God's people to offer in corporate worship when they come together. When they gathered in the temple, when they gathered in smaller worship gatherings, when they were in their homes as believers, they, they would memorize these psalms and they would sing them together. 
Now keep in mind, the printing press is a modern invention. So people didn't have printed Bibles at their home. They weren't walking around with a study Bible and you got your study Bibles and all the rest. You would have to go to a gathering where you would find scrolls. And, and this, of course, would intensify the importance of, of memorizing the text because you wouldn't have your own personal copy. So you would commit psalms to memory. You would sing these in community. This was the hymn book when they gathered and they said, let's sing. You open up the book of Psalms and there you go. That is your Spotify playlist, your iTunes or whatever. That, that's what you go to. And there's all kinds of different styles of songs in there, depending on the mood that you're in. You know, sometimes you're driving the car and you're feeling a certain way and you play music that sort of fits that way. Or you're feeling a certain way and you want to feel a different sort of way. And so, you know, you throw on your... I don't know, gangster rap or whatever, so you can thug out in the car or country music or what, whatever you're into, and, and you, you, know, you get your emotions going. Well, the book of Psalms is that way. There's lots of different emotions, lots of different styles of song. There's laments, there's imprecatory psalms. That's serious gangster rap there. Talking about my enemies are going to get this. You're like, whoa, that, yeah, yeah. There's imprecatory songs. There's, there's celebration songs and so on and so forth. So they're rich. And when you compare these ancient songs to many of our modern songs, you see how the church in the modern culture, particularly in North America, are really in a renewed need to bring our songs back into rich theology and rich biblical language and doctrine and passion. On that note, there was a piece in the Christian satire site, Babylon B, uh, and it was titled, Worship Leader Wishes God Would Have Just Left Us an Entire Book of Worship Songs. <laughs> and, the, you know, it's funny because God has, you know. So the satire article uh, starts off, Astoria, Oregon, uh, that's funny. Uh, while attending a worship leaders conference on Tuesday, the local worship leader, Jake Freebird Watson, lamented that God didn't leave the churches of the world a whole book of worship songs to employ in corporate worship. Watson stated that if he had been in charge, he definitely would have inspired an entire book of praise and worship songs expressing a wide range of emotions and declaring various truths about God, end quote. And so it's satire because what makes that funny is that's exactly what the book of Psalms is. And, you know, what makes it funny is it reflects the, the state that we're in as a church in the contemporary culture where we don't know this book, we don't know this chapter in front of us, we, we, we've lost a sense and a touch with reality. And so uh, this morning I want to make sure that we all get the reality of God's Word and uh, more than understanding it, that it, it penetrates our hearts. So there, on, on, uh, there in the opening, just giving you context, you see A on your outline, the makeup, the five sections. Uh, so, so the book of Psalms is actually, it's one song book, but it, it actually consists of five different sections or books. Uh, book one is uh, from chapters 1 through 41. Book two from chapter 42 to 72. Book three from 73 to 89. Book four from 90 to 106. And book five from 107 to 150. The book is divided into these five parts. It's likely a part of the ancient tradition to mirror the five-fold division of the five books of the Torah that we refer to as the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And in the five books of the book of Psalms, you can see if you take some time and you jot this down and later on this afternoon or this week, if you look at the end of each of these divisions, you'll find a benediction that closes each book, uh, lifting up the glory of God and calling the people in faithfulness to, to pray, to sing, and to live a life of holiness. So this inspired music book from God to his people, I'm just giving you context so you know as we're, we're, we're jumping in, you can see we're in the first book there. So the makeup, the five sections. Uh, next on your outline, music, the faithful supplications. Throughout the book of Psalms, you see reference to music, specifically calls to sing and praise, as well there's references of musical instruments. In the temple of God in Jerusalem, you can see how amazing the music would have been when you are uh, studying in the Hebrew Bible sections like Samuel, uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, or 1st and 2nd Chronicles. If you read those, you study those, and it'll help you appreciate the book of Psalms even more. So for example, 1st Chronicles chapter 15 
mentions all kinds of instruments, harps, lyres, cymbals, uh, horns, and trumpets. In 1 Chronicles 25, you can read about the king of Israel, and he's uh, uh, assigning temple musicians to serve as they're singing these songs. And so the temple had dozens of, of choral groups and hundreds and hundreds of musicians, thousands of instruments, hundreds of, of songs, 150 of them that we have in front of us. So let me state the obvious. These were written to be used and understood. That said, we move from music, the faithful supplications, to meaning, the framework for study. While reading the Psalms, or, or really uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, entire, the entire Bible, of course, it's, it's, it's important when you're reading it to have the context in mind, as I've been emphasizing to you. And with that in mind, as one reads, it's crucial to read, thinking or asking, what is this telling me about God? Right? Because ultimately, the Bible is a book about God. So I'm reading this, and I'm saying, what is this telling me about God? How is this calling me to Him? In a postmodern culture like ours, the Bible has often been subjectivized, where we go around, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? I don't care what it means to you. I'm not trying to be rude or anything. I want to know what it, what, what it actually means and what it's telling me about God. So, so, so we, we, we need to kind of push back against the culture in that regard. Uh, otherwise, we'll miss the meaning of the text. It makes me cringe uh, when I regularly hear things like, you know, the Bible's God's love letter to you. And it's really emotional and sweet, right? You know, he's like, but, but the Bible is, yes, telling us something about God's love, but it's not a letter to me. It's not a private letter to me. I'm not, in, I'm not the original audience, you know, I'm not in here. Uh, so we need to be careful when we're reading the text that we pull the meaning out of it instead of trying to push ourselves into it. Uh, further, when we're reading the text, it's just really helpful to keep in mind that it's kind of like reading someone else's email. You ever been at work or home and someone else is still logged into their email or their Facebook? I always like to have fun when that's the case. But, you know, if you're reading their inbox, you're reading their inbox and not your own. And while these books uh, th that we have are certainly books for us, we just keep in mind that they weren't to us, and that distinction is really helpful, and it'll help you understand the Bible even more. This book was written for us, but not to us, so we need to get at that original context. From the First Testament to the Second Testament, I'm mindful that God's one people consists of Israel and the church. And so I need to be careful not to read something that is given to Israel uh, in, in, in the context of the church in this age, like, say, dietary laws or whatever, and apply it to the church. That said, the Psalms are a worship manual of the ancient people of Israel. So as we apply it to the church... We need to step into that era of Israel. We need to step into that redemptive storyline that moves from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Israel and the great King David up to the Messiah and understand it in that context. So it's about God. It's a, about Israel. And the misreading, we move on the outline from the makeup, the music, the meaning, now the misreading. The misreading of this text that I have in mind as I'm going to step into reading and teaching it is that in our, our, our context where I hear uh, Psalm 23 most often preached, it's coming with the modern baggage of our individualistic Western culture. Without any reference to the identity of the personal pronoun in the text, who is the I and the my inside of this chapter, we'll hear people just insert themselves in the I and the my and think it's about themselves. Uh, so by way of context, the I and the my in the text is King David, it's the king of ancient Israel, God's anointed and chosen king. So this psalm is David talking to God. It's not me. Uh, we have to keep in mind that the ancient framework was uh, uh, wrapped around the king, and it was wrapped around the, the community of the king, the corporate communal group, the people of Israel. Whereas our cultural interpretive lens is very much individualistic and self-focused. We're looking at the text and trying to figure out uh, what, what, what it means to me or how it's about me or something along those lines. We have a tendency therein to apply this modern individualistic framework and we push ourselves into the text. In regards to Psalm 23, this has produced a lot of misreads where Psalm 23 is reduced to a romantic picnic with me and God. God's going to take me out, you know, on a late date night, you know, we're walking through a valley together. 
you know, we get up in the hills and he unpacks a little backpack with a little romantic picnic for me. He's so thoughtful. He even brings, you know, insect repellent for me and he puts it on my skin. He's got a little thermos with some hot chocolate in it. My thermos is overflowing, surely goodness. And here we are just hanging out on the blanket. And after the hike, he brings me to his house and we're together forever. Amen. You know, and other versions are, are more subtle, but this sort of romantic individualistic reading that is very common in our day, I hope to show you that that's not what it's about. So, um, you know, let's, let's, you know, as we step into the text, be open to considering its ancient context, its corporate context. And let's, let's be careful, for we know that the times that we're living in, which God warns us of, I think of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, which tells us, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. We like to hear about ourselves. We like to hear our desires reinforced. And we like to have people who stand in front of us and tell us what we want to hear. And when they don't tell us what we want to hear, we'll go somewhere else and we'll make it their fault, you see. The prophet Amos warned of a famine that would come to God's people, a famine that would not be of bread and water, but of the word of God. Look at Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and, and, and 12 here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread uh, or a thirst of water, but rather... A famine hearing the words of the Lord. The people will stagger from sea to sea, from the north to the east. They will go to and fro to, to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. They will not find it. Well, I'm happy to say to you this morning, we will find it. We will handle the text in its context, and uh, by the grace of God, we'll see the Spirit move. So Psalm 23, let's, let's go ahead and, and let's just read the passage so that we have a fresh overview of it in our minds. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd... I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, so now we've got the text. We've read it. It's, it's, fresh, it's fresh before us. Let me draw your attention to some things in the text. First, let's note the title of the chapter. In the book of Psalms, we have these superscriptions, subscriptions that give us some information about the historical setting, the author, the communal or liturgical use of the text. And in this case, we see a Psalm of David. In the original, you would read, La David, Le David, Le David. Le David occurs some 73 times uh, throughout uh, the, the book of Psalms, and these are references to texts that are tied to David. They're for David, to David, about David, or from David. That's how the preposition La, Le operates. Le David, Le, from, to, from, for, uh, for David, from David. David. Uh, David is the king of the, the great dynasty of the people of Israel. When you study, when you study the book of Psalms, in particular these 70 plus Psalms that are tied to him, and you see those references to David, it's important to have David's life in, in, in mind so that then you can read those in context. So if you were reading about a person you had no knowledge of, uh, you're, you're reading a, a song from an artist and you know nothing about the artist, you're not, you're not going to pick up on the on everything that's going on in the song. You, you could, I don't know, uh, if you don't know anything about Kanye, and then you hear some song where he's whining about breaking up with someone or whatever, and you don't know who the Kardashians are or whoever, I'm making this up as I go, but you get the idea, right? If you're listening to an artist who's going through something and you don't know the context, you can't, you can't connect the dots. Uh, so very quickly, who is David? David is the great king of God's people, Israel, chosen by God himself. Keep in mind, God did not choose David because he was special, strong, or a senior statement with experience and, and wisdom and holiness. On the contrary, he was a common child of weakness without wisdom or experience. In 1 Samuel, write down 1 Samuel. You can read in 1 Samuel. He was one of the youngest of eight boys. Write down 1 Chronicles 2. It speaks of David's seven brothers. So it appears then that one of his siblings had died. He had a, a rough upbringing. He had lost siblings. He's the runt of the litter. 
reconstructing the history, we can imagine the sadness in his child ho childhood home having lost that brother. Uh, further, David was alone a lot, it seems, on the data that we have. He was tasked with being the family shepherd, looking after the sheep that the family owned. And so we read in this psalm of, of, of David saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And here we see the shepherd has a shepherd. The great king, a former lowly shepherd, sees the great shepherd above in the heavens. Going back to the lowly shepherd and his life, he's the youngest boy in a big family tasked with washing the sheep. So he would have been alone a lot, as I, I made mention of. Shepherding is lonely work. Shepherding is hard, full-time, grueling work. Understand that the sheep were not fenced into one's own property. They, they were not, uh, you, you couldn't put them in the backyard and lock the gate and just kind of watch them from outside the kitchen window. No, they have to graze. They have to walk. And they have to walk to find places to graze. Uh, keep in mind, Israel is a desert, and back then irrigation is not what it is today, so it was not a plentiful uh, land with a lot of green in ancient days. Uh, hence, the shepherds would have to lead the sheep around the desert to find grass. The, the weather is hot. The terrain is rough. It's like L.A. a couple weeks ago. That was crazy, right? Uh, and, and that Sunday when the A.C. went out and we are all baking in here. It's, it's hot, and sheep are tough creatures that... that you know, are, are, are sort of tough to shepherd. Uh, they're also tough creatures because they can survive on little water and they can survive on very little grass. So a, a shepherd would have to guide them for miles and miles to find patches of a little bit of grass and guide them for miles and miles to find little puddles of water and, 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 and it would be long and grueling work. There are no iPads to pass the time. There are no tablets to pass the time. There's not, there aren't even, you know, a, a, a printing press and bound books and what have you. It's like, what do you do to pass the time? Just throw rocks? You know, that's really fun. You throw rocks all day. I, it's just a boring, alone, hot, horrible thing to do. Well, we, we know that David passed the time by playing instruments. That's one thing that we know. He was a musician. So there's a little shepherd boy sitting outside, if you want to kind of close your eyes and visualize it, in the hot sun with these sheep, and, uh, and he's looking after them for his family, and he's got a little harp or a lute, which, by the way, is a mistranslation in our English. It, it would have been known as the canor, and the canor is not exactly what you imagine when you hear the word uh, harp. or uh, The canor the is a very small instrument that would have had no more than, say, 12 strings on it that would be plucked. They're very portable. You can tuck it in your pocket or whatever, and so while you're just walking outside in the hot sun with these dumb sheep, trying to find a, 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 you know, a little bit of grass for them, you can pluck your little canor to pass the time. So, so that gives you a bit of a mental of David and, and what it would kind of look like and feel like. So David's doing that. He's a shepherd. And, and then one day, God sends the prophet Samuel, who basically is the spiritual leader of the nation at the time. And Samuel comes to David's house in Bethlehem. And God told him, Samuel to anoint one of the sons as the king of the people. Now remember, David has a lot of brothers. So when the prophet comes, uh, you know, and he's going he's gonna to pick someone to be the king, David is, is not the top pick. He's not the top pick among the options that are available. But God tells Samuel to pick the little plucking music boy outside in the hot sun to be the king of the entire nation. Now, mind you, Israel had a king at the time, so this was quite scandalous. Uh, the king at the time was Saul, who was a morally corrupt and politically inept figure. Long story short, David is anointed king. Saul tries to kill him. David goes into exile. And then David, in exile, writes various psalms while he's in exile. And then David returns after Saul is defeated by a foreign enemy. Not wanting to be captured and tortured, Saul kills himself with the sword. And then David returns and defeats the foreign powers and unites the kingdom of Israel with his success. And we see it wasn't his doing because he's just a little shepherd boy. Clearly, this is the power of God. Little shepherd boys don't do stuff like this. Little shepherd boys don't knock out Goliaths. Uh, which, by the way, that passage has nothing to do with you slaying the Goliaths in your life. Uh, you see God using this 
little child in these powerful ways, and there you see, oh yeah, that, that is the God of the Bible, isn't it? The God who takes the undeserving, the unworthy, the unable, and does great things by His power and for His namesake. David was a morally flawed man, but he was anointed as king. He becomes, sadly, when you study the text that I asked you to write down, he becomes an adulterer, a murderer, an idolater. He literally had a, a life-size statue of himself, an, uh, an idol made. As, as king, he was corrupt. As a father, he was a failure. His own son, Absalom, tries to overthrow him. And, 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 and for a second time, he has to go into exile. And it's his son? Uh, you fathers know how, what your children can, how your children can impact your heart, how they can uh, be jerks or, you know, whatever. They can disappoint you and, and the pain of that. Imagine your own son is trying to kill you and you have to run in exile to save your life. The enemy is your own son. All of this shows us God's grace and patience with His people in covenant. The kingdom should have collapsed, but miraculously it remained united not by David's doing, but by God's doing. It was God who chose David. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, write it down. It tells us that God chose David after his own heart. God's heart, not David's heart. It was his own heart, God's heart. It was God's decision to pick him as king. And further, it was God's judgment on Saul for his sin to have a little boy take the kingdom from him. And that little boy would go on to have his son, Solomon, rip the kingdom apart, and like father, like son, he too was morally flawed and fallen. And yet God in that once again displayed his grace in sending prophets to call the people back to himself. And in the midst of these things, God allowed David's son, Solomon, to build what he disallowed David from building, namely the temple of God in Jerusalem, the very house of God a porthole from the, from the heavens to the earth, making the, the tabernacle that was temporary uh, permanent and bringing God's own presence to the land in this very unique way. Okay, so that's the history. If you don't have that history and you're reading it, again, it's like listening to a, 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 you know, a song or something and you don't know what's going on in the life of the artist and so it just doesn't make sense. So now you've you, you got the history in mind, okay? So the history is going to help us study this because it's a Davidic song. Uh, so let me emphasize that history, okay? And, and in saying uh, history, uh, I'll take a little sidebar here because this is where the skeptics and critics of the Bible like to come in and they like to say, oh, your Bible, it's, it's not really historical or whatever. For many years, you know, that in the era of modern skepticism, in the 1800s and 1900s in particular, the uneducated and those prone to conspiracy and those looking for an excuse to deny the Bible, they, they actually claimed that David was not a historical figure. Uh, you, you, you Bible people just made up this history. David is not a real historical figure. They used to say that in, in uh, modern skepticism, 1800s, early 1900s. Well, there's tons of evidence that would reason otherwise, but for sake of time, let me just give you one little tidbit of history, just a little side apologetic here. Uh, let me show you a picture of the Tel Dan stele. Those of you who've been with me to Israel, you've, you've seen this. We took a pit stop at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem to look at this. A stele is an inscribed stone. This stone was found during excavations at Tel Dan. And uh, the, in, in case the proverbial saying, His, history is written by the winners is true, this stone speaks of king of Damascus who beat down his enemies, including the house and the dynasty of David. Uh, so it, it wasn't written by the winners. They were the losers, and archaeology shows that. But anyway, this stele serves to show you the history. It shows to give you a spiritual lesson. That, that even while chosen by God, David was flawed, his children were flawed, and things unraveled. In reality, God, God hands, his hands are all involved in this unraveling, though. God's using the unraveling for showing people his grace. We are undeserving of, of, of him to save the, the, the nation. We are undeserving of him to preserve these things, and yet he continues to do that. While we are faithless, he remains faithful, let the church say amen. Uh, the promised child of David was the baby born in Bethlehem. The eternal son sent of the father who took on flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's David's seed. He came to offer the kingdom of God to the people of God. And, and sadly, he, our Lord Jesus, was rejected and murdered. Fortunately, through rejection, 
Specifically through his vicarious death and victorious resurrection and visible ascension, God ushered in a new covenant to the people of the old covenant. And God brought in people outside the covenant uh, to, to enjoy the blessings of, of, of being a part of his people. God promised he would send one to Bethlehem who would shepherd the people of Israel. Micah chapter 5 verse 10. And according to Matthew chapter 2, the prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus is the prophesied shepherd. He, he told Israel in John 10, for those of you who are here, at the beginning of the service, we read John 10 together. What did Jesus say in that passage? I am the good shepherd. And with this in mind, as we have Psalm 23 in front of us, and we're reading of, of David, we also want to tie it to the story of redemption and the seed of David, who is the ultimate shepherd. As we read David, we have this theological hindsight from our vantage point today, uh, you know, uh, hindsight is 2020, and so we see that the one born in Bethlehem as David's seed is being prayed to by David. David prays to his own seed. The eternal son who took on flesh fulfilled the promise of the eternal triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to none other than this historical figure, David. So we have a psalm. It's written by a historical figure who was a shepherd, who became a king. Uh, there's a larger redemptive storyline in the Bible, a story of a king from heaven, who becomes a shepherd in the earth, a shepherd who's rejected in the earth and who dies for his sheep and who rises up from the dead. And then in his resurrection and ascension, the, the king who became a shepherd is, is now shepherding his people in this age as we await the return of the shepherd who will become the king of the earth. Wow, it's powerful stuff. It was a long, long time ago that, that David penned this. And he said, the Lord is my shepherd. And in the context of his own day, when David said this, that was a powerful reminder to the people that their king was not the king. The king was above. Scholars point out that ancient kings at the time, they were viewed as shepherds, royal shepherds. It is no wonder that the Hebrew Bible repeatedly uses the term shepherd for Israelite kings. The Hebrew Bible uses the term shepherd for non-monarchical Jewish leaders, like the prophets are sometimes called shepherds. Even military commanders in the Hebrew Bible are, are called shepherds. So it was, a, it was a term that was used at the time. In the New Testament, it's a term that's used for church leaders. That's what the word pastor means. It means a shepherd. So it is no surprise that you would uh, see this term throughout the Bible. But uniquely, as you hear the king say, the Lord is my shepherd. That's, that's a really powerful image for the people at the time. It is a term that is used to describe a ruler. A term that is applied to God in the Bible. If you look at verses like Psalm 28, Psalm 77, Psalm 78, Psalm 80, Psalm, uh, Isaiah 40, I put them in front of you, you can see how the term is used in these examples. It's an excellent term that is, uh, that is given that a shepherd is always with the flock and the flock depends on the shepherd for their lives. In like manner, we should depend on God for our life. The shepherd imagery in the Bible is thus very powerful and effective, especially for those who lived in the biblical world and knew that imagery really well. God was their shepherd. And through his, his covenants and grace, God used the Davidic throne to shepherd the people of God. The king was a representative to the people of the ruler of heaven. And so then, when the king is in sin, as David was prone to doing, the people faced judgment. And when the king is walking in righteousness, the people experience blessing, covenantal blessings. And that is what makes the Psalms of David important for you to see. For you see, in the times where, where, where David is in sin and you're reading those historical narratives and everything's going bad, and then in the times where he's in repentance and you see those in the Psalms, you see God drawing him in repentance for sake of the people and for sake of God's name. Think of Psalm 51 where he's crying out to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God. This is right after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet who, who got in his face because he was an adulterer and a murderer. And he cries out to God in the face of his sin, create in me a clean heart. So in Psalm 23, we see the repentant heart in reliance to God. And the people would have read that and said, oh, the king is walking with the Lord. The king is walking with the Lord. This is good news. The king is walking with the Lord. The king is trusting God. God, will, God will, will, will bless the people. The king is walking with, with God. We're going to be okay. I shall not want. Oh, we're going to be okay. Contrary to how I've heard this uh, preach to apply to modern personal ones, 
I shall not want. And then the preacher goes, you've been trying to get that job and you can't get it. I shall not want. You've been trying to get that girl and she's not into you. I shall not want. You know, and they just go on preaching. You shouldn't want anything. Or maybe start attacking materialism. We're, we're a materialistic culture or whatever. We shouldn't want. And you go, okay, I mean, yeah, you can apply it that way, I guess. But take some time to get the context first. This is Davidic, not personal. God is taking care of the anointed king. And that gives solace to the people. That God's taking care of the king. Our king is good with our true king. And our king is walking with our true king because God is faithful. He is a faithful shepherd. He is shepherding our king, and that means all will be well with us. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Let me emphasize, he makes me. God is the one who is doing things. God, God is the one who is making it happen. He isn't waiting on David to do it. He's doing it himself. God is making the sheep lie down. That said, there is a very popular urban myth that I've heard a lot from preachers when it comes to Psalm 22, and it goes a little something like this. You know, uh, the, you know, shepherds, and they got the sheep, and they're looking after them, and when one of the sheep, if there's a sheep that keeps going off and is going to fall off the cliff or whatever, here's the urban myth, the, the, the shepherd, have you heard this before? The shepherd will get that sheep and, and will, will break its legs so that it, it, it won't walk off the cliff, and then the shepherd will carry that sheep around his neck so that the sheep can't wander off, and the sheep will learn, breaks his, his legs to know to depend on the shepherd. Have you heard that one before? I've heard that a ton, a ton of times when I was a kid hearing this taught. And then you try to figure out uh, from the ancient world where you see anyone doing that, and it doesn't have, it, there's no sources. This is just sort of a, you know, Mythbuster Snopes uh, sidebar here for you this morning in case you've heard that. I, I've dug into the ancient text, can't find it. I've, I've, I've been in the land of Israel. I've talked to shepherds in the land of Israel. I'm like, hey, hey, uh, hey, shepherds, uh, have you, do you ever just get a sheep and, and, and just smack its legs around to teach it a lesson? You know, like, what? You know, it's like, yeah, I've, I heard it in church a bunch of times. Oh, you Americans. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. But anyway, the verses aren't invoking a, a shepherd just, you know, uh, breaking legs or whatever. It's a sovereign shepherd who's in control of things. It is important as you're picturing this, though, don't, don't picture it like this green pasture, this grassy picnic, okay, with, with Jesus, you know, and he's walking in the woods with you or whatever. Bible teacher uh, Ray Vanderlaan offers some helpful correction here. He, he writes, many Westerners imagine lush green meadows when they hear the word pasture, but green pastures in Israel actually look rocky. They're barren hillsides. Scattered amidst the rocks are, are some blades of grass, uh, where a drop of rain might fall, dew would collect underneath the rock, and a single tuft of grass can sprout up. It looks more like this. So as you're reading the text, look, check out those green pastures. <laughs> you know, doesn't it, it looks romantic. Uh, no, it looks horrible. My goodness. So the quiet waters, then, as we read in the text, the quiet waters, verse 2, that I'm explaining, these quiet waters, it, this is not a picnic by the lake. It's, it's probably a, you know, a small puddle, at, at times a running stream through rocky terrain. Scholars note that like camels, sheep can go long periods of time without water, and then they can drink as much as up to nine liters. Uh, and in contrast to goats who are quite independent, sheep depend on their shepherds to find pasture and, and to find water for them. The land is dry, the, the grass is spread out, so the shepherd has to keep walking through the, through the dry land and find these little pieces of grass that sprout from the dew. Sheep are not the smartest of animals either. Uh, further, they are very easy prey to tasty predators like wolves. You, you've never, you know, you watch those animal shows on TV and they got the YouTubes with animals fighting each other. You're like, oh, who's going to win, the cougar or the crocodile? That's crazy. You've, ne you've, ne you've never seen video of like a sheep, you know, punking a lion or a sheep punking a crocodile or whatever. They, they're, they, they are weak animals. They, they can't protect themselves. They're defenseless. They're, they, they, are, they are dumb. They're dumb animals. So with that, you go, thank you, God, for, uh, for the metaphor, I guess. Uh, we are the sheep of his pasture, the Bible tells us. I want to be an eagle. I want to be a, you know, I want to be, uh, you know, some, a panther. I want to be a panther, not, a, not, not sheep. Uh, when you don't have a good shepherd, this means that sheep will suffer. Because the shepherd is the one who is looking after them to find the water, to find the grass. 
to give them medication when they're hurt, to aid them in birthing. They need a lot of help when they're birthing. They're, they are not like, you know, dogs that instinctively just pop them out and lick all that gross stuff off. They need a lot of help from the shepherd. So they are helpless without a shepherd. In fact, I, I, I asked our sound team, and uh, we, were, we were able to pull it up. Someone sent me this uh, TikTok video this week, uh, and they, they didn't know that I was immersed in Psalm 23, and they said, oh, this is funny. You can pull it up. So here's, here's a lady who's, who's running in the, in the woods, and she's, she's on a run, and uh, apparently a flock of sheep had lost their shepherd, and they just started following her. And she's like, this is crazy. What am I doing? You know? And so she, she kind of she stops and she's sort of chatting like, what do we do? And they're all waiting for her. And then she takes off running and they just continue following her. Uh, this is a, a perfect illustration of how we are, right? When you don't have a shepherd, you're going to follow after something as your shepherd. If the Lord is not your shepherd, you will find surrogate shepherds that you will run after. And, and, you know, and, and there they are. They're just, they're just running after. They're running after. They don't know who's who. So when God chose to inspire the text of the Bible to explain and picture our condition, he didn't use powerful animals. He used the weakest. He used the weak, sheep. And beyond metaphors, God has explained to us in concrete terms that we are worse than walking sheep. We are dead sinners. And we are born into sin our federal head, Adam, did this, and he brought ruin upon himself and us, which leads me to the next point on the outline, depravity. So we move from David to depravity. Look back at the text, Psalm 23. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here we see the metaphor of the shepherd taking the sheep to, to graze and, and finding water and getting our need. Earlier the king said that he would not be in want, and here we see why he would not be in want, because the shepherd will offer his righteousness to him. So you see then, depravity, the shepherd knows on his own he's not righteous. We see the ruler has a restorer. The restorer, the restorer restores the sinful, not just by forgiving sin, but by imputing to them his righteousness. Now, David does not use imputation language here. He is using shepherding imagery, whereas imputation language is legal metaphor. In imputation, a sinner is given a perfect life that he does not have. In this case, the perfect life of the shepherd. Our sin is imputed to the shepherd's legal account, and he receives our guilt, and in exchange, we receive his righteousness. Simply put, we are treated as if it is his righteousness that was ours and, and, and done so on the basis to ours. Simply put, uh, we have one who has given us what we do not deserve. This righteousness that is otherwise foreign to us is given to us by Christ and Christ alone. And it is, it is known by faith. A faith that is foreign to us, just as righteousness is foreign to us, but a faith that is given to us by repentance, by the regeneration of the Spirit who saves us. In this saving, we are given another foreign or alien thing, this, this righteousness as well along with it. We have the word inside of the Bible, a justification. Another legal term that's used to describe what God has done to us. Justification. But here, Psalm 23 isn't using the courtroom imagery that we have in other sections of the Bible. It's using this outdoor, dry desert to explain things. And in the desert, imagery that we hear of righteousness, it is being given through a shepherd who leads and does so because of his own doing and not because the sheep deserve it. God is acting in grace. God is acting for his name's sake. The shepherd is leading the flock in righteousness for his name. This emphasis on the namesake of God and the language of righteousness overlaps well with those uh, courtroom metaphors that we find inside of the Bible, imputation and justification. Along with these, we have our reformational commitments, sola deo gloria, for the glory of God. It, it fits well with the solas. It, it, it's capturing that. So you see, God is a savior. He's restoring sinners. And his work of restoration is not because that we are deserving, but rather because his grace is on display. His name, his name, the text says. In Judaism, this is the word Hashem. Hashem means the name. It is used in reference to God to revere his name, Hashem. In the Jewish scripture, God revealed his personal name to the people, the name that we uh, uh, enunciate as Yahweh. And they would not pronounce that name out of reverence to the name itself. And so when the name appeared in the text, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Hashem, the name. 
And you know what name I'm talking about. You know what name I'm talking about. They knew Yahweh was the Hashem. Or they would say Adonai, which is a word that means master. The shepherd isn't any old shepherd. He's the master. He's the owner. The shepherd owns the flock. Listen to the way the prophet Ezekiel explains this. Look at the text of Ezekiel 36. Draw your eyes specifically at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for my holy name. The prophet goes on to explain God's holiness and his heart for the nations as he explains the Lord's disdain for sin in the covenant people. As well, the prophet foresees restoration. God's going to cleanse their hearts. Look at verse 25. He's going to cleanse them. Look at verse 26 here. He's going to give them a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, he's going to give them a new heart. That was David's prayer in Psalm 51 that I referenced earlier. Creating me a clean heart. Knowing our hearts are sinful. Knowing that the wages of sin is death. Knowing that we need a shepherd who will give us a righteousness that we don't have. A restoration that we otherwise would not have. And without this, we would face the next point on our outline, death. We move from David, depravity, now see to death. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through where? The valley of the shadow of death. There is the language of righteousness, and now there is the language of death. Righteousness and death are antithetical. The shepherd has come to lead us from one, death and unrighteousness, to another, life and righteousness. With his righteousness and his faithfulness to his Hashem, his namesake, the psalmist has no reason to fear, even though he knows he deserves death. I could walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I, verse 4, fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death. That does not sound like a romantic picnic, going back you know, to deconstructing the text. You know, hey, you want to go out on a date? Yeah, where are we going? Valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> I brought hot cocoa and a blanket. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. Let, let's go somewhere else. Uh, uh, how, how about truck stints? I like that better, right? <laughs> Predators like coyotes, bears, wolves, cougars, they would hide in, in the cliffs and they would wait for shepherds to come through and dinner would be served. David knows a lot about this. You can read in Samuel 17 where he uh, accounts of him fighting wild animals, bears and lions. In the mountains, the sheep are, are gathered at night into folds. Uh, the, the shepherd would act as a door to the fold. Sometimes they would pack a portable tent to cover the sheep, and the shepherd would stand at the door. We see that language in John 10, where I am the good shepherd, I am the door, right? That, that kind of imagery. They would often use fierce dogs as well to assist in warding off uh, predators because dogs are much better at that than sheep. Again, sheep aren't like barking. You know, my dog goes crazy when someone walks by on the sidewalk. You know, sheep don't do that. They're not going to keep you safe. I think that we, as moderns in particular, uh, you know, as comfortable moderns, when we read a text like this about fearing the valley of the shadow of death, we, we're often just so removed from living in that kind of fear. I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm never, I'm like not afraid of bears and lions and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, it, you know, in Inglewood, in apparently there's a lot of coyotes running around and on, uh, you know, on, the, on, on various community websites, people are posting, there's a coyote. I'm like, yeah, whatever, uh, you know, come to my house, coyote, uh, you'll see what happens. I, I, I don't live in this kind of fear. I'm removed from it. And so, and so when I read of that, I might move past it. But you got to go back in that context and just imagine a little boy who's given a rod and a staff and a bunch of animals to care for. And he has to walk them really far to find bits of water and bits of grass and has to sleep in strange places, how scary that would be. I grew up in a rough part of the city. Gunshots, you know, I have friends who were murdered and died, prostitutes. Uh, I, I grew up in some crazy sections of the city of Los Angeles. And, you know, my, my single parent dad, he would go to work and leave us there. And, you know, uh, I was a latchkey kid. You know, as a kid, I, I, I'm, that fear is real. You'd be really afraid. And so you have to put yourself in a context where there's real fear. Uh, people find comfort in this when you've been given a diagnosis of, say, cancer or some terminal illness and, you, and where, where the fear gets really real. Some of you who live in certain parts of the city, you, you, know, you know the fear. Uh, just around the corner from, uh, from our house, uh, what, 2019, Nipsey was shot and murdered. I drive by there all the time. You know, you go, man, that was crazy. This week, September 12th, uh, Another rapper, P&B Rock, was, was fatally shot at a place that I like to eat, 
Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. Uh, won't be going there after service today. But uh, it wasn't the Inglewood one. It was on our main in Manchester. It's a little more dangerous over there. Anyway, you, you know, we have homicides. We have things that you, you live in fear of. We have locks on our doors and, and ring cameras. And, you know, we got all of that. We, we know a certain level of fear. But I think we live in an illusion a lot. And so we need to kind of pull that back as we're reading the text. And, and imagine a real fear. Imagine a real child who's alone and who's scared. But he finds comfort in the shepherd because the shepherd is strapped. The shepherd is packing heat. The rod and the staff are, are used as weapons to protect them from predators. Look at verse 5. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The imagery here is kind of shifting from shepherding to hosting. It is likely a pun to invoke both images of, of a shepherd who's hosting the sheep, a host who's having people over for dinner. The ancient imagery of a Bedouin hospitality would, would come to mind in this kind of imagery. If you've ever been in the Middle East, Bedouins are nomads who shepherd and live in portable tents. So shepherds would travel with tents and they would run into other shepherds. And so as you're, 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 you, you might find yourself with another shepherd and you guys kind of hang out together in the tent and you prepare a table. You prepare a meal. You would be hospitable. And the enemies are these coyotes and bears that are out there in the darkness. And there's a metaphor that's there for David because David, in exile, has literal people trying to kill him. These psalms are written with literal people trying to kill the people who are writing the songs. And Israel is bordered by enemies who want to kill them and take their stuff every day, all the time. Again, as a modern, I'm just, I've never been afraid of Canada. I just, I'm not worried Canada's coming for us. I'm not worried about Mexico. I'm not, I'm not worried about the, I'm not, you know, they could bring in some, some crazy stuff, some drugs or whatever, but I'm not living in great fear of that. David lives in fear. All the borders want him dead, and the, and the people within a divided kingdom want him dead. So here we see the point of death. The despondent has a deliverer. The despondent has a deliverer. David knows what it's like to be on the run for his life. He knows what it's like to have people who want him dead. I'm talking about real enemies. I'm not talking about keyboard warriors who are talking smack on so social media. I'm talking about real enemies who show up at your house. Real enemies out in the wilderness. Wild animals. I will protect you. I will protect you. That, that, that's what David's clinging on to. You have anointed my head with oil, the text says. My cup overflows. Okay, again, it's not hot chocolate in a thermos. The anointing of the head isn't, uh, isn't uh, uh, you know, uh, the perfume or whatever, like, oh, some polo or whatever. It's actually more like deodorant. Hosts would anoint their guests with, uh, with oil to kind of kick the smell. Uh, there's not showers. You're outdoor for days on end. And you come in my little Bedouin tent, and you're smelling a little funky. So I'm, I'm going to get some, some, some oil and put it on your head and kind of kick the smell. <laughs> Banqueters in the ancient world, scholars tell us, were treated by a generous host to find oils that would be used to anoint their foreheads. This uh, provided not only a glistening sheen in their countenance, but would have also added a fragrance to persons and the room. For example, an Assyrian text from Esarhaddon's reign, describes how he drenched the foreheads of his guests at a royal banquet with the choicest of oils. Oil preserved the complexion in the hot Middle East climate. Both the Egyptian Song of the Harper and the Mesopotamian Epic of Gilgamesh describe individuals clothed in fine linen with myrrh on their head. So hosts would do that. You'd, you'd oil them up, you'd, you know, makes things smell a little bit better. It's, it kind of kicks the, the funk. And then you'd wash their feet as well. That was a part of the culture. And then you would pour drinks. You would pour drinks. This is a party. This is a place of joy. There's enemies all around outside. But in the grace of, of God, you're able to have this party. You're able to have this warmth. You're able to have this, this fragrant uh, uh, experience. With the overlapping imagery of the host and the shepherd, commentators also point out the double image here of the anointing of oil. Shepherds would put certain oils on the heads of their sheep to protect them from deadly insects that would burrow into their ears and burrow into their eyes and, 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 and would cause serious infections. Sheep who get infections in their, in their face, around their eyes, or in their ears, uh, it takes over their brain, and you'll see sheep just ramming their heads into trees. They're like, what's wrong with that sheep? That sheep doesn't have a shepherd who anoints its head enough and looks after it. That's what's going on with that sheep. The double pun, of course, in this is that the king of Israel is the anointed one. 
If you ask someone at the time, who's the anointed one? They say, David is. And, and, and because he is the anointed one, the cup will overflow because of the promise that was given to Abram for the people and the progeny in the place to have this prosperity. Hence, it's a fitting verse that speaks of all the days of my life, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. That's tabernacle, that's, that's temple. So that leads us then on our outline from David, depravity, death, to dwelling. And here we see that the suzerain, the state ruler, that's what that means, has a savior. David knows sin. He knows he needs one to lead him in righteousness. He knows that on his own he was leading himself and the people into rebellion and sin. He rests in the grace of the Savior who is faithful and who gives him what he does not deserve, life. Surely goodness, verse 6, and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. David deserves death, but he's given life. David deserves God's absence, but instead he has the promise of his presence. His presence in, of all places, the house of the Lord. A reference again to the tabernacle temple, which later David himself wasn't allowed to build. In Psalm 100, God is depicted as a shepherd bringing the flock to the temple for worship. The prophet Ezekiel foresaw a future temple. In the New Testament, the, John, he talks about this in his apocalypse. In the book of Revelation, of a temple coming from the heavens to the earth after the Messiah has judged sin and raised the dead and restored creation. David believes in these future hopes for the people of Israel to the nations through a Savior. He personally believes in them and, and, and he believes in life after the grave and the promises of God being later fulfilled in the last days in a resurrection. The Messiah will come. He will raise the dead. He will restore a temple. The people will know His goodness and His loving kindness. The word here for loving kindness is the word hesed. We've talked about that in, in recent weeks as I've been preaching various psalms. Hesed is a loyal, steadfast love that comes as a loyal act of a faithful figure. In this case, hesed is directed from the king of the, of, uh, out to the people. This is the context. David the king the, and the king of the universe are in cahoots together by the grace of God, and that work of the king to the king is overflowing to the people. And so the king who had experienced exile has the promises that God will bring him back. David himself, when he was in exile from Saul, had the opportunity to end things, but he would not touch the head of the anointed one, Saul. And when Saul killed himself in battle, he first asked a soldier to do it, and the soldier wouldn't do it. The king was the anointed. You don't touch the anointed. And more importantly, this King David was given a promise from God in this verse, verse 6, foresees its day coming. And for us, that day has come. The truly anointed one, the Christ, has come. David was talking to the one who would come, seeking his redemption. And we too are talking to the one who has come, seeking his return. Psalm 23 points us to him, his faithfulness, as well it calls us to action and this brings us to conclusion. We've considered the opening of the text. We've overviewed the text. And now let's consider the outworking, the believer in practice. I'll offer you four points on your outline in conclusion, seeking to apply the text and to draw us to the Lord as we will soon come to his table and close our, our service with some songs. Um, the first point that I give you by way of conclusion is covenant. Let us reflect that the monarch is maintained. Though David, the monarch, has, has enemies, he believed that he would dine in their presence. Not because he deserved it, but rather because God promised it. And it would not be David who, 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 who would actually see that day. In the sovereignty of God, he allowed the kingdom to unravel. A series of failed kings subsequent to David would bring the people into exile. It would take the people into the wilderness, into the valley of the shadow. And then in God's providence, they would be brought back to the land when the Messiah would come. That brings us to the next point of application, the Christ. His anointed has atoned. In, in John's mind, uh, when, when John the baptizer, when Jesus came, he described Jesus as having a winnowing fork, coming with fire to separate the wheat from the chaff. How, however, what, what John missed was the timeline in this. When Jesus returns, he'll have his winnowing fork and fire. But he, in his first coming, he came not, not to conquer, but to suffer. He was a sacrificial lamb. And it is worth noting with Psalm 23 in front of us, just look at, look at Psalm 22 in front of you. Just turn a page. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the messianic prophetic psalm that is on the lips of Jesus as he suffered on the cross. And in Psalm 22, he literally uh, shepherds a, a, a man with him into, into paradise, okay? 
when Jesus is on the cross and the thief is next to him and he's reading Psalm 22 about being forsaken and, and there's a guy next to him who's, who comes to faith and life in him and he tells him what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. A thief who's undeserving is promised paradise by Christ. Today you will be with me in paradise. And he could say that because the anointed one atones for the sins of his chosen. He can say that because he is God and it's God's prerogative to forgive. He can say that as he hangs on the cross because he is a faithful shepherd. And the New Testament depicts him this way. And if you were here at the beginning of service, you heard us read John 10, 11, John 10, 14 through 16, the good shepherd who lays down his life. Contrary to what certain false teachers have claimed, the other, the, the other sheep that he's pulling in aren't people from you know, other religions. It's pulling in the church. It's pulling in the Gentiles. The sheep hearing his voice and, and coming into the fold of Israel. Which brings us to the next point on the outline. We move from covenant Christ to church. His people are protected. In my introduction, I made a stink about the text not being reduced to you and Jesus on a date night in the woods with hot chocolate. Uh, but, but that said, I also don't want to remove the text from you experiencing it personally in an intimate relationship with the Lord. The corporate should flow to you as an individual. One of the Hebrew scholars that I studied under in grad school, Dr. Goldengay, writes this, the shepherd image thus applies naturally to the people as a whole rather than to individuals, to a flock rather than individual sheep, specifically as well recalling the story of Israel's exodus and journey in the wilderness the image will later allude to their arrival in Canaan and the building of the temple. The worshiper boldly declares that it's Yahweh's shepherding, which naturally applies to the flock in general, and is celebrated in Israel's history, which we've done in, in its worship. But look at the last line there. It also applies to individual sheep. And so for you, as you read the text, my, my prayer is that there's parts of it that jump out to you. Uh, parts of it that, that call you to repentance. Parts of it that call you back to God calling you back to a personal trust. And you're doing some analysis in your own heart with regard to the things that are on your plate, uh, the relationships that are hurting, the things going on in your, in your, in, in your body even. And you're, and you're saying, Lord, I want to be able to say these things with that kind of confidence. And you wrestle with the Lord at that individual level. And that together, we wrestle together as a congregation here, as a church, Delray Church. Uh, and, and we rely on this shepherd to be shepherding us as a church today. And we rely on those under-shepherds that he gives to us to help corral us and point us to him. We're going to gather and take communion. We're, we're, we're going to enter before our host. He's prepared a meal for us in the presence of our enemies. Out there in the world, there's all sorts of wolves and coyotes and, and bears that are coming to attack the church but, but the enemy isn't out there. We remember the enemy's also in our hearts. So as we drink the cup, we're reminded we need pure blood to cleanse us from our filthy blood. We need his body to be broken for our dirty body. We deserve to die in the valley of the shadow of death, but Christ has come to usher us into greener pastures. The communion table reminds us not only of what he did for us, but what he will do for us. And that is the final point on the outline. Consummation. His faithfulness is forever. He is coming again. Psalm 23 is eschatological. It not only uh, uh, gives us a picture of what was going on with David, but it also gives us themes that relate to the end times. It's Christological. It tells us things about the shepherd, Jesus. And it's eschatological because it's telling us about the shepherd, Jesus, and giving us themes with regard to his coming back. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, the promise to David is, is, is found in more than a thousand different places. And those texts, if you studied them all and you read them all out, you'd see they're filled with messianic end times overtones. Jesus fulfilled many of these texts in his first coming. But he is coming again, and in his second coming, he's going to fulfill what has been unfulfilled. In our public reading of scripture this morning, we considered the prophet Zechariah in the 13th chapter. And that prophecy about the Messiah's first coming... Uh, that against the shepherd, right? Against this shepherd, he, he would, the sword would come against him. That, that this, this shepherd would face rejection when he comes. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, the scripture says. And indeed, we saw that happen with Jesus. Very literally with his 12 disciples, they all scattered. And very literally with the people who rejected him. In Matthew 26, 31 and Mark 14, 27, if you write those down, you'll see both of those. Matthew 26, 31 and Mark 14, 27 reference this, Zechariah 13, in, in reference to the prophecy of the death of Jesus. 
And in the chapter before this, Zechariah 13, in the chapter before, in Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced, the prophet foresees. The rejection of a, prof, of a, of a, of a shepherd who's going to be pierced, who's going to be crucified in the eyes of the people. And in any case, Zechariah 13, God calls him, notice in Zechariah 13, my shepherd, my associate. God, the Father, is calling this figure his shepherd and his associate. A renowned Hebrew scholar Dr. Kaiser writes that Yahweh calls the shepherd my shepherd, indicating that this shepherd is no ordinary leader. Indeed, Yahweh also calls him the man who is my companion. Surely that's more than high praise. This shepherd is one who is side by side with or equal with the Lord. The term associate is used to refer to those who are close neighbors or relatives or close companions. The equality that such a relationship brings to mind is the equality with God that was claimed by Jesus in John 10 and John 14. The shepherd's close association with the Lord strengthens the case for identifying him as the shepherd of chapter 11, verses 4 through 14, and the one who was pierced in chapter 12, verse 10. If I lost you, don't worry. Jesus is coming back. When he came, he fulfilled a bunch of prophecy tied to shepherding image, tied to rescuing people from death, tied to giving people a righteousness that they did not have. And when he returns, he will vanquish the enemies of his people. And until then, he prepares a feast for us every week, a feast in his word and a feast to come to his table. And we partake in the presence of his enemies. And surely goodness and mercy flows to us in this. I shared with you that Psalm 22 was on the lips of Jesus when he died. So that was prophetic. Psalm 23, we've studied this morning. And in fact, as you keep reading in the Psalms, chapter 24, you have themes of the return the return of Messiah, restoring all things. So it all flows together, his first coming, his second coming. It all flows together, our depravity and what we deserve and his grace and mercy giving us what we don't deserve. So I invite you to come to him. I invite you to cry out to him for the forgiveness of your sins. There is no one, no one that you need to reconcile with more importantly than him. He is the creator of the universe, the master of it all. He owns it all. And he is a good shepherd who has come and has given himself for his people. He will bring you into his flock by his faithfulness and his vicarious work on the cross. Come to him. Cry out to him. Be forgiven by him. And for those of you who are in him, as we come to the table, be, be drawn closer to him. Know his intimacy. Know his love. Know his pardon. Know his leading. Know his guiding. Know, know that you're a part of his flock and his people. Know that you're a part of the promises that were given to the, the patriarchs and the ages of, 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 of those days. And, and, and they're coming to fruition and he's coming again and he's going to make everything right. And you get to be a part of that. Isn't that cool? Isn't that sweet? Isn't he good? Let's pray. Let's sing. Let's enjoy communion. Father, we thank you. For the sending of your son, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, he would come for us. We thank you for the sacrifice that was given. The shepherd would become a sheep and die. He is our sacrifice. He is also our shepherd. He is the, 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 the portion that was placed on the altar. And he is also the priest. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are both priest and sacrifice. We thank you that, 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 that you would come to earth and that you would be stricken. And we thank you that while your people scattered, you were faithful to keep drawing them back to yourself. We, we saw a little a video clip of how, how easily sheep can be distracted and start following after a person who is not their shepherd. And so, Lord, we come to you and we confess that like sheep, we are blind and very likely, many of us are chasing after false shepherds who are leading us in a path of destruction. Oh God, that you would be merciful to us in this very moment to wake us up, to give new life, to give repentance, to give faith, to give a, a, a restored passion for you. Lord, to quicken emotions that have grown cold, to, 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 to make us sensitive where we've become desensitized by the darkness of this world. Lord, the things that we used to pray for, that we stopped praying for, the calluses that have hardened our hearts, Lord, create in us a clean heart, O oh God, we pray. And as we come to the table, Lord, may the pictures that are before us remind us of all that you have done 
and have your way with us as we come to this table. In Christ's name, amen.